Okay, I think it's that time we're going to get started. I've gotten my technology up and running. I um, want to say welcome to those of you who, after lunch, <laughs> have come out to this um, seminar. Um, this is a, a, the second major seminar in, in a series. This morning, we looked at um, the nature of, of stereotypes in our society and how all of us as human beings process information, categorize them, and if we develop neg negative categories, which is pretty normal in our society, um, there are some groups that are positively viewed, some groups negatively viewed. It has implications for how we relate to others automatically and unconsciously. So we talked a lot about unconscious and unthinking discrimination and the scientific, scientific evidence um, showing that that happens and it happens to all of us and it's something we need to be aware of. We looked at the example of Jesus and how at the, at the individual level and in multiple examples of how he related to people he rose above the normal um, social uh, stereotypes and categorization of his society to treat each individual as a child of God. In our um, session this afternoon, we will be taking a, a, a more historical look, less at how we as individual Christians relate, and more at how as an institution we have operated. I. I say that um, at the beginning because I think it's important to emphasize that um, as we will look at the history, there are moments of brilliance and, and moments of leadership and moments when um, the church and its institutions rose above the, the normal demands, the normal routine of its culture and did well. Um, but there are actually great moments of tragedy um, when we terribly failed our Lord in terms of what we did. Uh, um, I say that not because we want to be pointing fingers and looking backwards. Um, it's important to understand where we've come from. Um, if we don't understand our history, uh, we are likely to repeat it. Um, so my presentation this afternoon on race, separate conference on the gospel is, is heavily historical although I begin with many contemporary examples suggesting that what happened in the U.S. is not unique. Um, um, and we, we have examples around the world where as a church we have faced, we have faced and are facing um, um, similar crises. But the burden on my heart is really to inspire us um, as, as young people, GYC, to, we need a new generation of, of young people. We need a new vision. Um, of both what God wants us to be and a new uh, courage um, to do that which is right because it is right. Um, and, and I hope that, that my presentation can play a role in, in inspiring you um, along those lines. Um, Alicia, you want to help me? There's a handout um, I, I have for each of you. It's an article that I wrote for the review. Um, they didn't ask me for it. I sent, submitted it to them. Um, uh, published a, a decade ago, but I think it, it encapsulates some of the points I'm going to raise in this presentation and in the one tomorrow morning. So tomorrow morning, we look much more on in-depth view at John 17 and the challenge of unity in the church. 
what are the barriers, what are the opportunities, what's the promise of unity, because everything that we're doing um, today is really heavily based on the need um, for unity as, as God is calling us to be. Um, I want to begin with a word of prayer, um, so why not bow your heads with me um, as we pray. Father in heaven, this afternoon as we review some of where we have been, we pray that you would be with us, that your Holy Spirit would give us wisdom and enlightenment. But most of all, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us, not so much about where we have been, but where you want us to go, and that you will give us the grace, the courage, and the strength so that we can be part of a movement um, that takes your word seriously, takes your challenges seriously, knowing that in your strength all things are possible. Bless us to this end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me emphasize that this is a seminar, um, so it, it, it can be interactive if you have questions of information, questions of clarification. Um, don't hesitate to stop me. I get excited sometimes and I will keep going if you don't stop me in, in with a question. So raise your hand at any point at which you might have a question. I begin all of the, my sessions with um, John 17, 21 and 23 because this, this is what this um, series is, is all about. It's, it's about talking about unity and the unity that Christ is calling us, all of his children to. Um, this is the prayer of Jesus. Jesus is facing Golgotha's hill. And he prays to his father. This is the true Lord's prayer in the Bible. This is the prayer of Jesus before he died. And in this prayer comes the burden of his heart as he looks at the future of his followers. And he says in the prayer explicitly, neither do I pray for these alone, but for all them also that shall come to believe. And in the prayer, three times he prays that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one with us. The point I am emphasizing in my seminars uh, to, today and tomorrow is Christ's prayer of unity explicitly in his prayer is that the oneness of his believer, of his followers, the oneness of his followers is an evangelistic strategy. This is not the reason we're being one in order to win others. We're being one because that's what God is transforming us to be one. But the fruit of being one is a powerful evangelistic witness that demonstrates to the world something that the world does not otherwise see. We talked about this morning and actually reviewed some of the scientific evidence that shows that prejudice and discrimination is natural to human nature. There's no group that has a monopoly on it. All humans, as soon as we can identify ourselves as a group distinct from another group, develop in-group favoritism attitudes and out-group discrimination and hostility towards others. It's a normal human process. It happens to everyone. Scientists can produce it. I talked about this morning as simply as if I give half of you in this room blue t-shirts to wear and the other half red t-shirts to wear. In minutes, you will start to feel better and more comfortable and more positive 
towards people wearing the same color t-shirt as you and develop more negative attitudes towards people with the other t-shirts. It's, it's a normal process. And, and Jesus is saying that the unity of his followers demonstrating and developing and, and showing the world something that doesn't normally happen is going to be the acid test of his authenticity and the most convincing proof that he has come. He says, when we are one, the world may believe that you have sent me. And when we have developed that perfect unity, the world will know that he has been sent. So one of the most effective ways, one of the reasons why, and I'll develop this more tomorrow, why we are marking time and not accomplishing the work that we have done, you can go to the North General Conference website and look at what we are doing, especially in the North American division. Over the last five years and over the last, I've actually looked over the last 50 years, we are baptizing on average in the last 50 years three to five members per church per year. We are not moving the world. We are not accomplishing all that we could be. And I'm saying, suggesting to you very clearly that one of the reasons is the lack of unity in the church. And Sister White says it. Testaments of Church, Volume 8, page 242. Harmony and union existing among men of varied dispositions is the strongest witness, the strongest witness that can be born that God has sent his son into the world to save sinners. So our absence of unity, that's why I call it Laodicea 101. The message of Laodicea says that you folks are lukewarm. You are guilty of sins that you don't perceive as sin. You don't even recognize your problem. And I'm saying one of the symptoms, I'm not saying this is the only thing, is the absence of unity. It is our privilege to bear that witness, that strongest witness that will convince the world. But in order to do this, there are conditions. We must place ourselves under Christ's command. Our characters must be molded in harmony with his character. Our wills must be surrendered to his will. Then we shall work together without a thought of collision. And I emphasize that. She doesn't even say we'll work together without collision. She says it wouldn't even be the thought of collision when we have that harmony and that unity that God wants us to have. Another quotation from the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 9, page 189. It again shows the enormous promise and the enormous witness that we will have when we follow Christ, develop that unity, and as we'll see tomorrow, that unity requires love, if we humble ourselves before God and become kind and courteous, tender-hearted and pitiful, there will be 100 conversions to the truth where now there is one. Wouldn't that be wonderful? In your church, you can change for every one conversion. There will be, in fact, 100. That is our opportunity. That's what we're talking about. Being in harmony with God, allowing him to use us in a powerful way, so that we can be the witnesses that he calls us to be. Um, so let's get into our message. The gospel versus prejudice. I would argue that the gospel contradicts everything that prejudice stands for. But Christians historically have not always practiced what they preach. Sometimes, the first time I preached this message at GYC, I entitled it, Is God Dead? 
because sometimes Christians have acted as if God is dead. Other times we've acted as if God were alive. Some Christians historically in the United States have been at the forefront of concern for racial justice and harmony. Other Christians have invoked the name of Christ and quoted scripture to justify the inhumanity of man to man. So you can see successes and failures on both sides. Many times we have simply reflected the opinions and practices of the community to which we have belonged. We have followed the world instead of obeying Jesus. No denomination is innocent of the things I'm going to talk about today. On the question of race, the Adventist Church has had great achievements, but we've also had some tragic failures. And the seldom discussed problem of racial and ethnic division is a current issue in the Adventist Church today, and I'm not just talking about the United States. So let me give you a few examples. Most of my two-hour seminar will be on the U.S., but I want to show you this is not just an American problem. There were open tensions in the early 1990s between Croatian and Serbian Seventh-day Adventists. In 1992, in the wake of the violent breakdown of the former Yugoslavia, conflict between Croatian and Serbian SDAs led to the creation of separate conferences for Croatians. The brethren could not get along. There was larger national tension that spilt over into the church and in order to continue, the church organized into two separate groups. Uh, the way the U Yugoslavian Union officially reported the facts of the war was one of the contentious issues among Adventists back then. So um, many, um, some felt that the way the official union was even reporting the political events that were occurring, it was biased, and that led to tensions within the church. Pick another example. In Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe, the former uh, British colony of Rhodesia that was renamed Zimbabwe when it became independent. Um, during Zimbabwe, practiced apartheid very similar to S South Africa did um, with, with uh, uh, blacks, whites, and coloreds. Uh, coloreds, a mixed racial group. And so the Adventist Church in Zimbabwe was organized into black conferences and a colored conference. In the early 1990s, when the walls of apartheid fell in Zimbabwe, the General Conference pressured and encouraged the colored Seventh-day Adventists to merge with the black Seventh-day Adventists, so that instead of having separate conferences based on race, they would all come together in one conference. Um, the colored Seventh-day Adventists resisted it. I have been to Zimbabwe, I have talked to some of them, some of the leaders, and they felt that the GC was pressuring them to do something that they had, uh, on average, colored Adventists were wealthier than black Adventists. They felt they had invested a lot into their institutions. Um, they felt that they were, if they merged with the black Adventist conference, they would be a small minority. They would have been about 10% of the membership of the Adventist church in Zimbabwe, and that they would lose everything they had worked all of their life to build up because being such a small minority, they would have no control and no say. So they resisted efforts of the General Conference to merge, and there was ensuing what I'm calling public and legal wrangling, uh, went back and forth, until eventually the colored Seventh-day Adventists um, refused to merge 
And because they were violating higher organization, they are even today no longer a part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Worldwide Fellowship of Seventh-day Adventists. They still exist, they still have their churches, they still order quarterlies and use them, but they're not technically Seventh-day Adventists. Part of, they're not technically part of the Worldwide Church of Seventh-day Adventists. They are their own group out there doing their own thing. And there was enormous lawsuits and so on over who owned the property and who should have the property, and I'm not sure how all of that got settled. I'm just saying that these are not, we're not just talking about ancient history issues, we are talking about issues that continue um, to plague the Adventist Church. South Africa. Um, the Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Africa reflected the apartheid of its society. On the apartheid, virtually everything in South Africa was linked to your race. I know the South African society well, have been there 15 times in the last seven or eight years. I directed the first national mental health study in sub-Sahara Africa in South Africa, so I've spent a lot of time in South Africa, gotten to know many of our church leaders, and I'll talk about one experience I had that was quite uh, striking, just having to be in South Africa at the right time. So the history is the Adventist church reflected the apartheid of the society. In South Africa, on the apartheid, everything was linked to your race. If you visit Cape Town today, they can take you on a tour and show you what were the colored beaches. No, well, let me start. They were the white beaches, which were the nicest beaches, and the colored beaches, which are not quite as nice as the white beaches, and then there were the black beaches, were not which as nice as the colored beaches. So there was a hierarchy of race and everything. If you fell sick on the street, there were black ambulances and white ambulances and colored ambulances. So which ambulance you got was dependent on your race. So everything in South Africa was, was linked to race, and the Adventist church reflected that. Um, in the Seventh-day Adventist Church in South Africa, there were black conferences, there were colored conferences, and there were white conferences. All of the black conferences were organized together into a black union conference that was not a part of any world division, but attached directly to the general conference. The colored conferences and the white conferences were in a separate union. They were not part of any world division, but they were attached directly to the general conference. In 1994, apartheid fell, and the church came together, and instantly the colored, the two unions, the black union and the white and colored union, merged together into one South African union. So there was one union in South Africa, all of the churches coming together as, as in one at a union level. At a conference level, there have been more challenges. Um, in South Africa, the Colored Conference, uh, most of the Colored population is in the Western Cape Province, the area where Cape Town is, so the Colored Conferences quickly merged with the Black Conference. The White Conference didn't in the South, and the White Conference in the North didn't merge. There were multiple attempts uh, to merge. I just want to just say it's, it's complicated. Let, let me give you an example uh, to, to, to understand the, the, the difference. I mean, there were really practical issues involved. Um, so it's not just about race, it's, it's really, there were complexities linked to, to race in South Africa. So to put it into context, in the United States even today, blacks earn about 65 cents for every dollar whites earn. That's the racial gap in income in the US today. In South Africa, back in the mid-1990s, blacks earned 10 cents for every dollar whites earn. 
So there's a huge racial gap in income. And if you can imagine conferences that were organized along racial lines all throughout their history, from the time the Adventist work started in South Africa during apartheid, that's the way they were organized, then you could only imagine that the conferences differed dramatically in resources. It meant the pastor's salaries differed dramatically in the white conference than in the black conference. And if you say, let's merge, the white ministers ask, okay, and whose salary, how, how, what salary is going to be paid? If you bring the two together and you have the black pastors making a much lower salary and the white pastors making a higher salary, that would actually be violating the Constitution of South Africa. So that's a problem. And then the whites, the blacks don't have enough wealth to pay the salaries the white ministers are getting. And the whites don't want a reduction in their salaries. I'm just trying to say it's, 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 it wasn't simple. The General Conference stepped in, leadership. General Conference stepped in and actually provided additional resources so that all the ministers were paid the same. Benefits the same, salaries the same. This took place over years, but eventually they took that argument away. So there was no longer an argument of differences in salary and benefits. The question is, can we come together? I said both the White Conference in the South and the White Conference in the North had constituency meetings where they essentially needed to vote to abandon their constitution to join a combined conference, and both of those votes failed. And then in the North, there was a group with considerable pressure from the GC to, to, make sh to ensure that this happens. There was a group that came together from both conferences. Both conferences uh, nominated um, a, a, a delegation, and this delegation met together for many months and worked out all of the details, came up with a model constitution. It was beautiful. They had wonderful provisions, such as if the, the conference would now have a president and a vice president. If the president of the conference came from the historically black area, then the vice president has to come from the historically white area, or vice versa. So it was ensuring that even though there might be differences in the size of the two communities, both would be represented and both would be working together. And, and it's just an example of the, the detail. It was impressive, the details they had developed. I happened to be in South Africa for my research at that time. It, it was a striking contrast. I was there over the weekend in South Africa. This is around the year 2004. Four, five, I don't remember exactly. I think it's around 2004. Um, it was, we can probably find it, it was Nelson Mandela's 85th birthday. So I, from my hotel room on Saturday night, I watched this beautiful program that was televised internationally. The Clintons were there and all these superstars from the US were there attending the 85th birthday celebration of Nelson Mandela. And the next morning, a friend of mine, local South African friend, picked me up at my hotel Sunday morning. I had nothing to do that Sunday. He said, the Transvaal Conference, which is the white conference, is having its constituency meeting. And they're voting whether the conference will abandon its constitution and accept this new plan that the two conferences have come up with. And so, of course, wonderful opportunity. I wasn't a delegate, so I couldn't speak, but I could sit in the meeting and observe. And I sat there all day and listened to my brothers and sisters discuss whether or not they would come together as one. It was sad. It really was a sad experience. I, I was hoping what they needed was 75% under the Constitution. Essentially, they were going to dissolve the conference to, to form this new union. 
under the Constitution, they needed a 75% majority vote. It was clear from the discussion there was no way they would get a 75% majority vote. But I was hoping, just symbolically, they would get 50%. You know, at least half would say, we want to come together. Um, actually, when the vote was tallied, they got 42% voted for the two conferences to come together. So it didn't happen. Um, it didn't happen in the South either. So eventually, the General Conference voted a working policy, instructed the division and the South Africa Union, and the Union had a constituency meeting, didn't leave it up to the conference, and the Union at the constituency meeting voted to realign all of the conferences in South Africa. To essentially to force the white conferences at constituency have refused to merge, the union says, we will make you merge. And guess what happened about two years ago? Members of six congregations in the Transvaal Conference, that's the white conference in the north, and two congregations in the Cape Conference, that's the white conference in the south, brought a lawsuit in the High Court of South Africa against the South African Union Conference and the division, which is the Southern Africa Indian Division. So Seventh-day Adventists are suing the Seventh-day Adventist Church because the church is making them come together as one. This was public information. In fact, I, I was in South Africa a year and a half ago, and my friends told me they, they're going to lose. Under the Constitution of South Africa, there's no way you can maintain a racial-specific organization. They will lose the case. But just think of the publicity for the church. Adventists are suing Adventists over whether this church is going to be united as one. In October of this year, the High Court in South Africa ruled. It gave both sides something. One of the things the church in South Africa had argued in its lawsuit was that the lawsuit had no merit because the, these churches, since you know most churches, even the title for your, your deed of the church is owned by the conference, so they argued that the church was not a sufficiently legal entity to even bring the lawsuit. And the court ruled they could, they, could, they could bring it. They had the right to do it. But the court dismissed the lawsuit and said the union and the division had the, re, the authority to restructure. So the, the realignment, the forcing all of the conferences to come together in South Africa will happen. Now it's, it's legally been supported. But can you imagine what it means to the church to the members, our witness to the world, that this, in fact, even occurred. And I want to share with you something the judge said, the judge who provided a high court ruling, what he said at the beginning of the case when he issued his judgment. This is a direct quote from the judge. I see seated before me men of God who are God-fearing, and I think you should go and see if you cannot resolve this matter Without, having, without me having to rule on it. 
In other words, the judge is saying, I don't even know why two groups of Christians are in front of me over this matter while you can't figure it out yourselves. If, however, you feel that you cannot resolve this matter by yourselves, I will be forced to rule one or the other way. That's South Africa. And this just happened. This was reported in the review. The review didn't give the context. So if you, if you read it, it looked like a very innocuous um, um, situation and didn't give the context of what really has been driving the issue um, in that context. Okay, now where are we in the United States? And we will spend most of our time talking about the United States. In the United States, not only have we had um, separate conferences in the North American division since the 1940s, we have become so comfortable, I would say, with our Laodicean condition that I would say by and large, most of all leadership, black and white, do not view it as problematic. It was interesting in the, in the, when I sat in the meeting of the South African constituency meeting, the one thing that got the biggest amens and so on from the audience was when a speaker got up and said, why is the General Conference trying to force us to do this when there are separate conferences in the United States and that is not perceived as a problem? And the South African audience resonated to that. Why are you pushing us around and you're letting the Americans get away with it? Was their point. Um, not only do we not see it as problematic, I'm actually saying we celebrate it, and constantly there are calls for even more division. For example, in the Pacific Union, there are, have been rumblings over the last several years of why don't we have a black conference in the Pacific Union. One of the things, to be honest with you, I used to live in the Pacific Union many years ago, and I was intrigued coming from the East Coast of the Pacific Union. There weren't regional conferences there, but there was the same level of division. In fact, you could argue in the Pacific Union, there's division without power. What I mean by that is there is a regional department in the Pacific Union, in the at a conference level, the Southeastern California Conference or the Southern California Conference has the personal ministries department, the youth department, and then there's a regional department. The regional department with the regional secretary, the regional department is essentially the black conference. And I was struck that while I was out in the Pacific Union, they would have, they didn't have camp meeting, but they had convocation, I think they call it convocation. There'd be the conference convocation, and then there'd be the black convocation. There'd be the conference youth camp, and the black youth camp. So there seemed to be a lot of separation, but what the, the members there are arguing is we have separation, but we don't have the authority to make our own decisions. So there is still rumblings about that. Um, you know, um, another sign of further disunity um, is in the year 2000, December 5, 2000, the presidents of all nine black conferences in North American division signed documents to create a new separate system of retirement for the regional employ conference employees. What that means is that if you work for a regional conference in the United States, you are not a part of the retirement system of the North American division. You have your own separate retirement system. Now, 
again, put this into context, for 20 years, I remember attending a meeting back in the early 1980s in Battle Creek, Michigan, which was part of the Lake Region Conference looking at problems with the retirement system. The retirement system was unfair, not to black conferences, but to any small conference and conferences that did not have large institutions. There were work groups, there were study groups that had worked on this issue. Um, there had been, you know, um, panels that had committees that had been put to look at it. Um, and nothing happened in over 20 years. And the brethren feel the church is marking time, no progress is being made. We can develop our system, and it is true. The system the regional conferences have developed provides greater money in retirement than the traditional church system. So they went ahead and developed their own thing. I say that only to say is that it's not only that we are divided, but we are not moving in the right direction in many ways. How did we get to be this way? What has been the problem? What has been the history? Let me begin by talking about a myth. A myth is a belief that is widely shared, but it's not true. In fact, I was even told this myth in South Africa. When I first met, my first visit to South Africa, I was told that Sister White, by South Africans, that Sister White was an advocate of racial segregation in the church. Was that, in fact, true? Did Sister White advocate racial segregation in the church. Now, a myth means it's something that is widely believed but isn't true. I would submit to you that that is, in fact, not true at all. If you look at the history of blacks in the church in 1886, Harry Lowe, a former Baptist preacher, forms the first black Seventh-day Adventist congregation after racial tensions arose in the biracial church in Edgefield Junction. So from very early on, there was some tension. In 1889, C.M. Kinney, born a slave in Richmond, Virginia, is the first black Seventh-day Adventist to be ordained as a minister. However, on the day of his ordination, some white Seventh-day Adventists attempted to segregate him and his members on the campground where the ordination was taking place. Because of the treatment he had received, where his members and himself, even on the day of his ordination, were not allowed to mingle freely on the campground, C.M. Kinney said, you know, if we can work together, maybe the practical solution is to have separate organizations. What did Sister White say in response to that? She says, and it's in Southern work, um, you have no license from God, Ellen White says, to exclude the colored people from your places of worship. Treat them as Christ's property, which they are, just as yourselves. They should hold membership in the church with the white brethren. I would submit to you, Sister White acted as if God was alive. She, in the face of a call given discrimination, Sister White said, absolutely, we shouldn't do this. However, someone will quickly say, but later on, Sister White did talk about having separate services. And I would say to you, okay, what was the context? What happened at that time, and what was the context in which Ellen White called for separate services? Well, times changed in the United States in the late 1890s. It's what historians call the Jim Crow era. 
segregation laws were one of the results of the late 19th century changes. Jim Crow laws began in 1875, which banned, banned interracial marriages. They were followed by the construction of separate schools required by 1885 laws. In the 1890s, new Jim Crow laws spread rapidly to trains, streetcars, employment, and hospitals, that everything had to be separate. At the height of the 1890s, at, at the height of the time when America is becoming much more separate as a society on race, at the height of the 1890s, Edson White, the son of Ellen White, who found letters, his mother is now in Australia, but he found letters that she had written for the review, which had not been published in the review yet, and where she talked about her burden of a work to the colored people, Edson White decided that he would implement the comprehensive plan for the South that had been proposed by his mother. And so Edson White developed this steamboat called the Morning Star and he sails it down the Mississippi River. And this steamboat was a floating headquarters complete with chapel and a print shop and publishing, um, uh, a print shop for publishing educational material. He was doing agricultural work. He was doing an enormous work among blacks in Mississippi. Um, Edson White was clearly testifying that God was alive. He was doing leadership. He was doing evangelistic outreach. He was teaching uh, blacks how to grow uh, crops, how to grow foods, uh, and so on. It was an amazing work that Edson White was engaged in. However, many whites in the South, remember the Jim Crow era and the societies going separate, did not appreciate what Edson was doing. On May 25, 1899, Edson wrote a letter to his mother explaining what had happened, the recent incident that had occurred. And I'm going to read this letter to you. It's, it's on the screen, but I'm not sure if you can read it from where you are. Two weeks ago tonight, a mob of about 25 white men came to our church at Calma at about midnight. They brought out Brother Stevenson, our worker, and then looted the church, burning books, maps, charts. They hunted for Brother Casey, our leading colored brother of that place, but he had escaped in time, so they did not reach him. They then went to the house of Brother Alvin, called him out, and whipped him with a cowhide. I think they would have killed him had it not been for a friendly white man who ordered them to stop whipping after they had struck a few blows. They did not pay any attention at first, but he drew his revolver and said the next man who struck a blow would hear from him and then they stopped. During this time, during this time, they shot at Brother Alvin's wife and struck her in the leg, but did not hurt her seriously. They took Brother Stevenson to the nearest railway station, put him on the cars, and sent him out of the country. They posted a notice on the church, forbidding me to return, and forbidding the steamer, the Morning Star, to land anywhere between Yazoo City and Vicksburg. The whole difficulty, Edson exclaimed, explained, arose from our efforts to aid the colored people. We had given them clothing where in need, and food to those who were hungry, and taught them some better ideas about farming, introducing different seeds such as peanuts, beans, etc., that bring a high price. And this, the whites could not stand. So this is the letter from Edson White describing a recent incident that he and his team has encountered as a result of their work among blacks down the Mississippi River. 
The letter was written on May 25, 1899. It had a profound influence on his mother. Only a few days after receiving her son's letter from Mississippi, she wrote on June 5, 1899, on the subject of race. And she says, among other things in her letter, as far as possible, everything that will stir up the race prejudice of the white people should be avoided. There is danger, Ellen White said, in closing the door so our white laborers will not be able to work in some places in the South. So again, the context is, Ellen White, a team of white Seventh-day Adventists has a team on the Morning Star, working in the South, they're being shot at, their lives at risk. Um, the white community in the South is resisting the work that they're doing. And Ellen White says, if we continue this way, we will not be able to continue to working either among the blacks in the South or among whites in the South. And she says, we may have to work separately for a time. And I want to read a direct quote from Ellen White. She said, referring to the black believers who have their own churches, she said, let them understand that this plan, this plan of separation, because of the hostility we're encountering, needs to be followed until the Lord shows us a better way. That's in Testimonies to the Church, volume 7, um, page, uh, volume 9, page 207 until the Lord shows us a better way, was a key point of Sister White's um, um, concern. The, the point that I, I, I can't overemphasize is that in Ellen White's agreement that we will need to work separately just so that we can continue to function, that we can reach both groups in the South, she didn't see it as a permanent position she says, we have to do this because of the crisis we're in until the Lord shows us a better way. I do think that her recommendation was then used by church leadership for the next 50 years as a reason for installing um, separation in the church. It was used to justify segregation, and I'm saying to you that personally, even when I first visited South Africa, South Africans told me they're doing this because this is what Sister White wants. The, the, the segregation and separation was what um, Sister White wants. Um, let me... These are two more quotes from Ellen White that gives you some context. Testimonies to Church, Volume 2, um, 204. I am burdened, she says, heavily burdened for the work among the colored people. The gospel is to be presented to the downtrodden Negro race but great caution will have to be shown in the efforts put forth for uplifting this people. This is what she wrote, this is after the Edson's letter. Among the white people in many places, there exists a strong prejudice against the Negro race. We may desire to ignore this prejudice, but we cannot. The fact that the workers are actually, lives are being threatened, she says, we cannot ignore it. If we were to act as if this prejudice did not exist, we could not get the light before the white people. We must meet the situation as it is and deal with it wisely and intelligently. This is not a racist speaking. So I think people who have said that she was just ignoring the reality, she wasn't. She was trying to deal with the realities that they were facing with. The best thing will be to provide a colored people who accept the truth with the places of worship of their own in which they can carry on their services by themselves. 
This is particularly necessary in the South in order that the work for the white people may be carried on without serious hindrance. Let the colored believers, that's what I mentioned, be provided with neat, tasteful houses of worship. Let them be shown that this is done not to exclude them from worshiping with white people because they are black, but in order that the progress of the truth may be advanced. Let them understand that this plan is to be followed until the Lord shows us a better way. Unfortunately, I mentioned her statement has been used by many to justify um, segregation. Any, any questions so far? Yes. Is there not a better way? Hmm? Is there not, has there not been developed a better way? I, I think my position would be there's been a better way for a long time. I, I think she was talking about, that's why I said, if you, if you don't understand the context, you could see the context, you could, I read the letter so you understand exactly what she saw, and she says, we will not be successful reaching anybody in the South. We would like to act as if it doesn't exist, but this is the reality. We've got to adapt to it until we find a better way. So I'm saying it was a specific advice. I would say it was wise advice to the specific conditions that they faced. Let me, um, before I deal with the second myth, um, the second myth is that um, regional conferences exist because blacks wanted separation. That is widely believed by both blacks and whites that I have encountered across the North American division, which is not true. Regional conferences do not exist because blacks wanted separate conferences. But I'll go into the history in a minute. Let me say a couple other things that I think are important in terms of understanding the history of race in Adventism. Um, uh, in 1909, um, the 1909 GC session, L.C. Chafee, he was a former Baptist preacher. At that time, he was the most prominent black Adventist preacher. He pastored an integrated but predominantly black First SDA Church in Washington, D.C. The daughter of Frederick Douglass, for example, was one of the members of his congregation. A.G. Daniels was the new president of the General Conference. The General Conference has just moved to Washington, D.C. from Battle Creek, Michigan at this time. And A.G. Daniels, the G.C. president, wants to organize a church in D.C. where blacks and whites would worship separately as the new G.C. officials are moving to D.C. Um, um, Shafi requests a white pastor to assist him in an evangelistic campaign so that Adventism in D.C., black and white together, would be working unitedly in this campaign, joined together as one. The GC committee refuses the request. J.H. Howard, a black physician at the time at the First Church, wrote A.G. Daniels, the GC president, it is difficult to see why it is necessary to make a race line in the Adventist denomination in the face of the fact that the truth involves a positive protest against any such thing in the church. So J.H. Howard, a black physician at the time, is certainly acting as God is alive. He's saying there is no necessity. The GC conference didn't want so much wanted separation that it didn't want a black and white minister to work together in an evangelistic outreach. By the time of the GC session, the black leaders then, since the church leadership is not allowing unity of, or integration in terms of working together, demand representation. They said, we have no representation. Um, at that time, the GC had a department called the Foreign Department, which coordinated foreign missionary outreach. And they said, we should have a Negro department. 
that would coordinate the development of the black work. Uh, the first secretary and most of the early secretaries of the Negro Department, which the GC established in 1909, um, were in fact white. W.H. Green is the first black Adventist to head this department, and that happened in 1918. Eventually, L.C. Shafee, the most prominent black Adventist minister in the church in 1909, left the denomination over this issue. He felt, if, you're not, if we're not going to work together as brethren, he's not going to be a part of the church. After World War I occurs, uh, black veterans came back. Um, lots of things happened in the U.S. The 1920s is a time of enormous racial strife in America. And then enters another chapter that became a sad chapter in Adventist history, J.K. Humphrey. He was a black Adventist minister in New York City. Um, he was a former Baptist preacher from Jamaica. He was a pastor of the Adventist First Church of Harlem. It was the largest Adventist church in New York City at the time. Humphrey asked the GC to abolish the Negro Department and replace it with black conferences. So he did ask for black conferences, but I'll show you what happened to him. He, why did he do it? He did it because he was unhappy. He felt the Negro Department had done absolutely nothing since it had been formed, that much wasn't happened to really coordinate the evangelistic outreach of the church, and he was developing a much bigger plan. He, he had a, a vision uh, for developing what he calls a utopia park. It would be a black-owned community which would have established an orphanage, would have established a home, would have established a training school, a college. It would have an industrial area where people would be trained and jobs. It would have private residences. He called it a utopia park, and he wanted to move forward with this. He felt the, region, the Negro Department wasn't doing much to develop evangelism, and this utopia park would be an effective evangelism outreach. Humphrey told his conference president, there were no black conferences at the time, so his conference president was white, about the black project. The president told him he should not develop the project. Humphrey decided that he was, in fact, going to develop the project, so he was insubordinate to church leadership. Um, and they met with Humphrey in a five-hour meeting. By the way, this meeting, if you can go back historically, you can read about it in the New York Times. This meeting is published. Uh, the report of this meeting was in the New York Times. Five-hour meeting, the entire congregation of the largest church in New York City support their pastor. The New York News and Times has meeting, reports that a meeting would, would have been out of control and become a riot if Humphrey hadn't quieted the people. Um, the General Conference President and President of North American Division wrote a 28-page document that you can find in the GC's archives defending the church and its action in terms of dealing with Humphrey. Humphrey was kicked out of the church and he and his entire membership left the church over the question of racial division. So I'm, I'm just giving you the example that in history we have had cases when some of the most prominent black Adventist leadership left over um, the divisions within the church. Humphrey's church was called the United Sabbath Day Adventist Church, and this denomination um, continued. I want to look at a more positive, and this is um, what happened around the time of the Second World War. Uh, Roosevelt's presidential order of June 25, 1941, there shall be no discrimination in the employment of workers in defense industries or government because of race, creed, color, or national origin. So for the first time in the U.S., 
uh, since World War II, blacks were integrated into the Army, Navy, and Marines. Okay, and it is that time when the society is moving towards integration that black conferences were formed. But to understand the formation of black conferences, let me say a word, we're gonna break for, a, 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 take a break. Let's understand what the Adventist Church was like in 1943, because the incident that triggered it occurred in 1943. The only black person in the General Conference was the Secretary of the Negro Department. He and other visiting black leaders, so what could happen, if the GC was in Washington, D.C., if the director of the Negro Department or other black ministers met at a general conference for a meeting, right next door to the general conference was the Review and Herald cafeteria. White Adventist leaders could go to the Review and Herald cafeteria to have lunch. Black Adventist leaders couldn't. They would not be served in the GC cafeteria, the Review and Herald cafeteria, because they were black. They would have to go down the street to a colored-only restaurant to find a place to eat. Back in 1943, the year that actions took place that triggered the formation of regional conferences, uh, CUC, the local Adventist school, and Washington Sanitarium and Hospital did not admit blacks. Most Adventist schools in the United States at the time did not, colleges and universities did not admit blacks. Andrews had a quota for blacks of 21 students. So Andrews was one of the progressive students. It had a quota, it was only 21, but Andrews accepted blacks. Um, Southern Missionary College was the last college to accept blacks. It wasn't until 1968 that blacks could be accepted at Southern. So I think the context, you have to understand the context of the church following society. Society was very segregated and the Adventist church was very segregated. So for example, at most of our campgrounds in the United States in 1943, tithe-paying black Seventh-day Adventist members could not go on the campground because of their race. So the, the, the context of the formation of the conferences has to be understood in the context of systematic discrimination where the church followed the leading um, institutions and then there was the Lucy Bayard incident, which then triggered activity that led to the formation of black conferences. But I think we have ended an hour. I'm going to begin um, after we have a break with the Lucy Bayard incident, the specific factors that led to the creation of black conferences. And then I want us to really talk about that was 1944. We are now in 2009. And what is God calling us to do in 2009? But any questions before we take a break? Any questions or comments? Yes. I am so glad you asked that question. Thank you. Go, go ahead. I, I cut you off. I'm so glad you asked that question. You can actually argue that the response of the Adventist Church in terms of forming separate conferences along racial lines within the overall denominational structure was a progressive step compared to what happened to most denominations in America at the time. Most denominations at the time around from the, in, the, in the 19th century divided into two 
separate denominations based on race. So that is true of the Baptists, that is true of the Methodists. Um, they are separate denominations completely based on race. Um, so that the, the, the U.S. is not unique. Martin Luther King made the statement, and his statement is still true today. He said the worship hour between at 12 o'clock on a Sunday morning, 11 to 12 on Sunday morning, is the most segregated hour in American life, with Americans of different races praying to God in their separate churches. And he was true. So it's not only that Adventism, social science research suggests that 80% of all black people in the United States go to predominantly black churches. And, and many of them are in congregational type structures. When I say congregational type structures, it, they don't follow the conference structure that we have, but where all the authority rests at, rests at a local level. Most black churches are in that model. So you're right, we, we are not that out of step. I would say, and I might talk more about this tomorrow morning, is that there has been enormous interest in the last, especially the last 10 years, and there is more action, activity, and interest in other denominations out there in addressing this issue than we, we have. I, I don't think the denominations have merged, but there have been a lot of meetings, there's been a lot of activity, even um, um, a group like Promise Keepers, which is a non-denominational group, has had enormous um, interest. One of their six key areas of outreach is racial reconciliation. Uh, Promise Keepers is a group largely targeted men in terms of their responsibilities to their homes, but, but that has been a dramatic example of it. So there's a, there's a lot of activity, I would say, in more activity in the other churches and in the Adventist church right now on this question. But let me let you have a break, um, and we'll come back and look at what really happened to start the regional conferences, and then where do we go from here. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.